please be aware that this is for professional investors only. Hello and welcome to Morning Espresso. My name is Carlo Fascinati and I'll be your moderator today. The concept of our webinar is very simple. Every week I'll be inviting a special guest to discuss topics that matter most to you. Today's special guest will be Jakob Tapp, Portfolio Manager of the European Financial Debt Fund. But before we begin with Jakob, we will also be speaking with Nordea Asset Manager, Senior Macro Strategist, Dr. Sebastian Galli. In addition, at the bottom of your screen, you see a question function. We invite you to ask your questions or send an email to nordeafunds at nordea.com. Of course, you can also speak with your sales representative should you have questions after the webinar. So without further ado, let's head over to our dear colleague and friend, Sebastian. Sebastian, good morning, how are you? Good morning. And where are you joining us on this lovely morning? I am in Bavaria, it's nice, sunny, it's uh, time to go to the beer garden. It's maybe a bit early, but it's really fine. Well, good good morning to you and to your family. And uh, look, Sebastian, you're absolutely right. It is a little bit early to to head to the beer garden. However, you know, a little bit later, I'll give you a chat, and maybe we can do some uh, social distancing uh, beer, and you can tell me some some more uh, amazing macroeconomic insights. I look forward to it. So, look, Sebastian, let's let's go to the biggest news so far this week. Uh, we know that in um, uh, on Monday uh, evening, uh, Angela Merkel and Emmanuel Macron dis- started to uh, pitch uh, this new European recovery plan. This is uh, quite uh, major, major news. It could change, obviously, the direction of the of the European Union. Uh, what what are your thoughts around this plan? Can you can you give us a little bit of insight of what it's about and and what it means for for our investors? You have to put this in the context of the evolution of the European Union. It's a, a mongrel, so it's kind of made up, uh, made up of very disparate parts, things that don't fit together. And over time, it becomes something that fits better and better and better together. And one of the elements which was missing is the ability to mutualize debt for issue debts to the level of the European Union to help countries that actually need it, particularly in the periphery, particularly in Italy. And the resistance to it came in, coming from the Germans Austrians uh, and the Netherlands, for example, was that if we help Italy, they won't reform. So we're throwing good money after bad money. It's just basically not going to help. We need a bit of pain. We need yields to be higher in Italy to force them to do actually their job. And what we've seen right now is that the Europeans are willing to make a a gesture uh, for uh, the the South, which of course has huge political implications in these countries where populism uh, has risen quite significantly. It means that we care and also means that they can do more and also puts pressure on the ECB or hawks within the ECB who feel now more isolated than they were because they could back themselves on, uh, on Germany. And, and certainly, I'm gonna I'm gonna share now with with our viewers uh, the the first slide of the day. Obviously, this is the the image of Emmanuel Macron and Angela Merkel uh, making uh, the, the that announcement. And I think to, to to describe that succinctly, new hope maybe for the new European Union. So, so do you think that this meeting of halfway, this this sort of effort on 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 all parties in in, in order to find a, a path forward? I know later on we'll be describing a little bit more about the economic recovery that can expect me going forward, but how does this play into, into, your, into your estimates? 
What it means that yields, and they already have uh, moved in Italy, are going to be cheaper. It also means that there's a sense of uh, a confidence that the odds of Italy, for example, leaving the European Union are falling dramatically. And that means that is much more sustainable in Italy also in Greece and other countries within the, the periphery. And it's just a notion that you have a safety net, that if you get into trouble, somebody actually cares enough to do something about it. And when you have a safety net, then the consumer, the households, corporates and the likes behave much better. They're much more reassured. We see that in Germany where we expect growth to pick up quite significantly. Why? Because things work and you have the sense that there is a safety net in place. And, and of course, better late than never. And obviously, we've also seen that uh, on the implication on government yield curves, as, as particularly in Italy, right? Exactly. A yield curve has moved at least 20 basis points on the 10-year yield. Sovereign Italy called the BTP. Absolutely. So, Sebastian, now I'm, I'm going to transition over and zoom a little bit more into into the into Europe, uh, and in particular, looking at sort of European uh, stocks, value stocks. We've seen many of which are are uh, compromised from the from the banking sector. Uh, seem to be really attractively priced. What are your thoughts around this? European stocks in the financial sector are cheap or value oriented, if you want to call it, um, because the market believes that we're are essentially in the financial crisis as we saw in the great financial crisis as well as the eurozone crisis but this is an economic crisis not a financial crisis banks are entering this crisis in a much much better position a second element is that dividends are supposed to stay on the balance sheet so not be paid until at least october of 2020 with fear that it will be extended beyond that under pressure from the ecb which is very good of course, for the tier one capital ratio of the banks, that means their balance sheet, if you want to call it. And But it's in an era of crisis as we had in the past few weeks until the rebound, cash, so dividends are very attractive. So if you don't have them, people start to panic very seriously. Another element of this, which was before the crisis and is even, even more the case now, is that the yield curves in general are very low. And Banks run what we call down the, the, the curve. Uh, so they basically are taking long-term risk. And if these yields are very low, then it's much more difficult for them to do income. So not a surprise. It was not good before. It's not good now. Absolutely, and so again, if we if we share with this uh, uh, with our with our viewers this this unique uh, little photo uh, of of an old Nordea branch, you see that banks are are forming this core part of the economic recovery, right? They are. They they a, a bank is the utter privilege of being in in basically in contact with a central bank to get liquidity. It's a form of nobility and has the right and the opportunity to efficiently allocate capital across the economy by competing uh, together. So better banks, weaker banks, uh, and and the likes. And that means they are core of all activity. And everything they do, every contract, often enough, will have an element which is linked to the financial system. And so, Sebastian, now this, this takes me on to, to, to the next question is, okay, these, these are all good points. And in addition, we know that historically investors uh, have relied more on the, on the Fed versus the ECB. Now, uh, is this way of thinking still valid or have there been strides made on, on the ECB side in order so that that data, and particularly when it comes to, to, to banks, uh, can we take that at face value? If you look at this picture of Nordea Bank a long time ago, we have had operations in Nordic countries, Europe, and over that time would basically uh, float around the entire world, including the United States. And right now, 
this bank is regulated by the ECB, among others, and it's also regulated in the United States by the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve is a very, very tough regulator. It basically goes into the banks, digs very deep. It also allows, forces very detailed stress tests where the information is released to the, the greater public and of course to investors, showing very clearly different forms of vulnerabilities, leverage ratios and the likes, very clear aggregate and disaggregated picture of what's happening in the US financial system, including foreign banks in the United States. If we look at what was happening a few years ago in Europe, you had national regulators fudging the rules uh, to help their own banks and, and so forth, and the ECB took over. And what it did over the years to become tougher and tougher and tougher as a regulator, getting into the system, digging in, forcing the release of more information uh, and becoming a, a better regulator. Is it at the level of the Fed? It only basically covers right now about 70%, a little bit more of the financial system. Is that as tough? Not yet. So are we there? No. Are we going to be there in five years or, or seven years down the road? The answer is most likely yes. It's basically a progressive uh, process. European banks, generally speaking, are in very good shape. Not all of them, but generally speaking. And, and they're basically continuing the process of forcing uh, different things within the financial system. Absolutely. And, and so, Sebastian, this also brings me on to my, to my next question is, okay, va value stocks and in particular banks are implicitly a, a, a bet on economic recovery, right? So, so what, what can we uh, expect as investors uh, going forward? If we focus on this Bolero dancer, she stumbled very badly with the COVID. And what she's doing is she's slowly starting to get back momentum. And it's a very slow process, but it gathers more and more energy. And the outcome of this, for example, in the case of Spain, is we expect growth to pick up to 6.1% next year, which is very sizable. And then following up to a trend growth of 2%, which is just excellent for, for Europe. If we focus on the other side within the European Union, we expect a drop of growth of 7.4% this year, followed by a rebound of 5%. Is it optimistic? The answer is most likely yes. Does it matter for bank? Not that much. What matters is that things do improve. They don't have to improve vastly. Credit risk, of course, is dampened by this in the sense that it, uh, it doesn't get much worse and, and actually does improve. Also means more economic activity, which is very good for, for banks. And so generally speaking, as long as growth is doing okay, you're absolutely fine within the financial system. Within such a spectrum of possibility, you have huge dispersion of a crisis. And that means country selection, sector selection within a country and name selections are very important, which means the analysis of the balance sheet, the analysis of all banks within a given sector, and the analysis of the country, the economic and macroeconomic type of analysis. And whereas I do can do some of it, um, I can't do all of it. For that, you need a very experienced portfolio manager and you need a, a team of analysts to work with you. Absolutely. And, and thank you, Sebastian. I think now we can uh, move on to sort of the, the key takeaways from today's uh, session. And of course, Sebastian, uh, as always, if you'd like to jump in, uh, uh, feel free to do so. But uh, for, for those of you uh, that would like a quick recap of what you've just listened to, I think the news has been fantastically important this uh, so far this week. Point number one, we have this recovery plan. Is this a new hope for the European Union? Uh, clearly, Sebastian thinks so, and so do uh, 
uh, initial reactions from the market. And this is really good news, uh, particularly for the periphery countries and Italy. Uh, so hopefully this will be a driver going forward. Uh, secondly, of course, banks are the core of this economic recovery. And by that, we also mean that by buying financials, uh, it's, they're still interesting and they're offering an attractively uh, uh, priced and, and an interesting opportunity uh, that we believe is sound opportunity. And finally, with regards to economic activity set for this rebound, uh, you know, again, banks are, are, are a bet on economic recovery, financials in general. Uh, they're appealing, um, particularly for the periphery. But of course, as Sebastian has mentioned uh, several times already, these require experienced hands. Experienced hands that now we, in a few seconds, we will be uh, going to. But Sebastian, thank you again for your time uh, this morning. As always, extremely interested, and we look forward to welcoming you again next week. Thank you for having me. And so with that, let's go on to our special guest this morning, Jakob Tapp, Portfolio Manager of the Nordea One European Financial Debt Fund. Good morning, Jakob. Morning, Carlo. And how are you today? I am great, thanks. And you? I'm doing very well. But before we start, Jakob, I got to ask you, I love the shirt. What, what inspired you to wear it today? Well, you know, it's one star. It's one Nordea team. It's a tribute to my team. And I, I think... By the way, it, it is produced by a company called Alpha Industries, which is a great name for the game we're in. So, so I think, you know, you summarize it beautifully. So who you are, what you represent and where you're going. So that is a wonderful way to, to start our interview. I'd actually like to take the moment to start uh, by reading a, an interesting uh, article, not the whole thing, just an excerpt that I think fits very well uh, to, to this morning's discussion. And it actually comes from uh, Andrea Aria, who's the chair of the ECB supervisory board. And he was responding in this interview how have European banks been doing so far in the current situation, which I think is very apt uh, to, to our conversation. And he says, look, there's a tendency to compare this crisis to the crisis of 2008. But while this outcome in both cases is a severe economic downturn, the role and position of banks are different. First, banks entered the current crisis in much better shape than they were at the start of the previous one not least thanks to the extensive regulatory reforms undertaken over the past decade. And secondly, this second time around, banks are not the source of the problem, although they do still have a crucial role to play. Now, I couldn't have said it better myself. I think it's a nice way to start our session, particularly since we'll be talking about European financial debt today. So look, my first question to you, Jakob, is, and again, I think this is as a, as a, as a first time, you know, if we have first time viewers or viewers that are already maybe investing in the fund, a lot of time the comments we have is that there's a lot of complexity around uh, financial debt. Do you, do you think this is a, a fair, true statement or, or is it really just easy peasy? It, it is very fair. Uh, and a good entry point into that discussion is really to look at the individual documentation for each and every bond out there. So. Uh, it's, 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 it's long, it's tedious, it's complex, it's very much individual, and it's very much you know, written in the point of time. And it's, by the way, filled with abbreviations and acronyms. So it is much difficult to read. The, the reason uh, that the documentation uh, for these bond issues is so complex is actually because of, of uh, regulation. Because regulation is global, uh, coming from the Basel Committee, there's been, we're number four or even five now in the Basel Committee uh, guidelines. 
These are being implemented into European law. These are being implemented into local law in Italy, in Germany, and everybody does it a little bit different. So all in all, super complex and you know, super much linked to, to point in time. And as I said in the beginning, I think it also shows a little bit on this page here, it's long. It's it's a very long uh, documentation that we're looking at. And and I'm glad I'm glad I'm glad you mentioned that because I think one of the things I remember mostly of of you know some conversations that you have had and and also some of the the product managers that have presented it over the years when we're talking about documentation, I think it's really easy when you're talking to, to visualize uh, rather ten to fifteen pages, you know, fifty pages. But when you start going to two hundred plus in terms of documentation, you, you when you look at the number, maybe it doesn't hit you. So hard. So what I thought was kind of nice is uh, I went into my, uh, you know, old old uh, bookshelf and dusted off some of my old books and and look, I, I found this 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 Harry Potter Volume One, and you know what? This is gives you a good sense of this is this is what. 200 and about 80 pages looks like. So that's that's one of the documentations that we were we were showing before in the slide before. But if we talk about you know you're a thousand plus here we're talking about Harry F Potter Volume Five. You know we put these two together. You know here this is 1,000 pages. So I mean it's not just I you know as much as as much as I enjoy reading uh, a thousand pages. I imagine that a thousand pages of financial debt documentation is not so easy, and it requires a really good expert hands that, that goes through that absolutely and talking about harry potter you know what you need to look for when you read these thousand pages are all the dementors and i can assure you there are many more dementors in in, in bank uh, in, in, in bond documentation for banks and why is it important to look for the dementors because the dementors are basically you know telling you the rights that you have as a creditor here uh, and it's also giving options to the issuer for instance to postpone uh, your uh, maturity to say to even to perpetuity and it's options for the regulator to bail you in to make sure that you will never get a cent back so it is really really important that you understand it and it's also you know every every bond has it has it, has its own thousand pages behind it and that's just to, to me again. That to me, that's that's amazing. And again, I, I you know I invite my viewers that you know when we look at financial debt, you know you might think that yeah I can I can read it, but remember this is going day in and day out. So it really you know not all of us have the time, which is why we look for uh, expert experienced hands to, to take us through that. I think and, my, my analysts they used to tell me that this is not for amateurs. Don't do it at home. And I'm very sure that they're counting me in uh, when they're talking about amateurs. <laughs> Well, Jakob, look, when we when we talk about financial debt, it's hard to stay away from the word, you know, to discuss financial institutions. And, you know, we often hear about banks. Sometimes, you know, it's been not always so flattering. Are banks really facing so so many issues? Or, or how how is how does this concern how's financial debt concern? I think perhaps we'll start with the banks as such. I think Sebastian mentioned it. Banks have been told not to pay out dividends. Uh uh, the question is really if they have much income to, to pay those dividends with in the first place. They've basically been staffed by uh, authorities and regulators ever since the big financial crisis in 2008. So every year, raising more capital, not paying out much dividend, uh, de-risking the balance sheet, making the, the, the prospects for, 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 for future dividends even smaller. It really has been a painful hunger ride for banks on the equity side. But for us as creditors, 
it has been the best of all rides, the, the, the ride of our life or a feast because basically they have been, banks have become safer and safer and safer, which is great news if what you depend on is actually the, the coupons that you're getting out of your bonds. So happy days for, for, for debt basically. And of course the situation that we have now uh, where spreads and, and everything has widened due to, to, to all this corona, we are basically back when it comes to, to yield prospects to where we were in 2012 when the fund was originally launched. Uh, the only difference here is that now banks are not part of the problem, they're actually part of the solution and they are much better capitalized than they used to be. So great for debt, not so good for equities. Absolutely, and I think you know we'd like to maybe invite you know our viewers for a moment to take a look at this chart that we've uh, prepared for today. Obviously, we see financial debt versus equity, very two different stories that are being told here, right? Yes, very much so. Equity is down with say 60% uh, debt up with say 200. That's uh, I- to be noticed. And, and look, I'm, I'm now I'm glad to see some questions are coming in from our clients right now, at one in which one is commenting on, on particularly this slide, but, or linking it rather to this slide. And they're asking, what, what are the main differentiating features of this fund versus uh, your competitors? Of course, uh, not mentioning the, the, the competition as such, but what would you say are your defining features? It's of course difficult to, to say what the differences is, but I believe that we we put in uh, bonds in our portfolio because we like them and only if we like them. Uh, so, so we are super selective. We don't live off the primary issue uh, uh, line. I, I believe that quite a few funds would be say there's a new issue coming, they're buying it, putting it into the fund and, and that's basically what they're doing. And our strategy on the other hand is to rely a lot less on uh, primary but actually engage ourselves vividly in secondary buying and selling. For instance, in, in uh, these days, we are, we, are, we, are, uh, we are very much interested in increasing our insurance share. That's basically happening in the secondary markets. Uh, we have, I believe, probably less uh, Cocos or 81s than our competitors for good reasons that I think we'll be talking about a little bit later. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we probably also have more insurance, for instance. And, and, and speaking about insurance companies, so how, how are they coping now in this, in this COVID scenario? We have always liked insurance. So in that respect, there's nothing new really. Insurance companies are highly capitalized, much more so than banks. They are highly profitable, much more so than banks. They are very much into a long-term business model. Uh, uh, they are building their business models on profitabilities. Profitability, yeah, (laughs) no worries. Uh, And if you look at them in the current situation, sorry, with with Corona, the the direct hit is actually very difficult to to, to see. Of course, uh, they are hit by Corona directly, but really in order to be a one in a 200 years event, which is what insurance companies are basically looking at, well, you need to arrive at, 10 million deaths, which is much more than we've actually seen. Then, of course, insurance companies are hit indirectly via asset losses on on portfolios, but that's actually very much counterbalanced by similar moves on the the liabilities. Uh, They have event cancellations that's hitting them, the Olympics, Formula One, etc. There's business interruption 
uh, meaning that when businesses are closing down, perhaps insurance companies will have to pay up a little bit. But all in all, it looks very manageable and much more indirect and much more sort of long-term in many ways than it does for banks. So our confidence in insurance has actually increased, especially relative uh, during uh, or since uh, March. And, and, and taking maybe to, to, to more of a, um, one of the, the last questions I have to you, with, for you today is, okay, we've been seeing the fund outperforming the high yield market despite having at all times uh, a significant allocation to investment grade uh, on average. Uh, a clear sign that there's opportunities in this asset class. Do you, do you expect financial debt to continue to be offering these interesting opportunities going forward? I, I, I sincerely do so. When, when comparing to high yield, you need to take into consideration that high yield debt uh, is structured quite simple, really. Whereas these financial debt types that are rated investment grade are much more complex. So it, it's a little bit of a different game. But I think I said it before, we are really back to 2012. Look at the performance in the slide we had before from 2012 and think about uh, a sector that's actually better capitalized not part of the problem, et cetera, than it was. So yes, I do think there's a great uh, opportunity to be had here. However, I do also think that it might easily be a bumpy ride. How are Q2, Q3, even full year results this year going to look like? I'm probably a little bit less optimistic uh, than Sebastian is, uh, but I think, you know, it, it, is, it is very interesting. And look, maybe just to, to look at some, some now, it's, a, it's really great. We're having some good activity from client questions. Uh, with regards to the sell-off that we had earlier this year, uh, were you able to, to cope uh, during this, this sell-off? The simple answer is yes. And, and I think in my rule book, uh, rule number one of portfolio management is when you have a difficult situation, you need to stick to simple things. You need to keep your portfolio as you want it. You don't fall for the temptation to sell, say, the, the things that are easy to sell and keep all the stuff that's not easy to sell. That is a recipe for disaster. You don't want to go down that route. You don't want to panic. And you make sure that you work, you know, hard to make, to have a portfolio that you like. And yes, we've managed it all along. And this is actually a very good question, I think, because obviously there's that search uh, for yield uh, always in the market. Uh, the question here is, what is the yield of the fund? Also taking into consideration, right, that your current average rating of the fund is actually investment grade. I, I think it's on the, you know, the, the, the tip between investment grade and high yields. So somewhere mm -hmm. with double B and triple B, it's roughly 5%. In, so in that, that is, I'd consider that very attractive uh, in, in this environment. Absolutely. And then my last question I see here from, from a client is, uh, what is the weight of uh, cocoa bonds in the fund uh, currently? It is roughly 15%, I think probably a little bit more, but it, it's around that. Uh, we've reduced it somewhat. Uh, I think if you allow me just a little bit to elaborate a little bit. Absolutely. Yeah. Sebastian spoke about it. So we have, of course, banks have been told not to pay out uh, dividends until October. I sincerely think that this is going to continue they're not going to be allowed to pay out dividends for longer than October, I would, I would believe. The next thing in line among, you know, uh, 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 what do you call them? Uh, uh, discretionary payments, of course, are bonuses to pay paid out to employees. On that front, banks have also told to be careful. Uh, the third discretionary payment, uh, payment is really uh, 81 coupons. 
Maybe actually just to spend the coupons on AT1s. I suspect this is going to happen for some banks or perhaps even quite a few banks. Uh, if you look into, for instance, the latest stress tests from ECB on what happens to banks when, they, when, when, when we have economic downturns far less than the one we're probably looking into, banks would probably have to shut off uh, coupons on AT1s. So that, that is one of the scenarios I would see in front of us and to weather the storm, you know, waiting ahead, we've actually reduced on 81s and kept the ones in the banks where we feel quite confident that these are actually going to be able to weather the storm and actually pay the coupons. So that's, right. that's one thing that I see uh, that I don't think the market agrees with me on or us. Okay. okay. And so maybe now maybe we have a look maybe at the sort of the key takeaways from, from today's session. So we'll lo load that up on the screen right now. So look, for those of you joining uh, this week for this session, obviously, you know, we're discussing European financial debt. I think it's important. What are the main takeaways from today's session? Well, first, number one, banks are not uh, at the core of the issue this time, which is good news for, for those looking for opportunities. Rather, you know what? They're part of the solution. Uh, secondly, I would say financial debt is a, an arena where complexity can be turned into opportunity. And we have obviously a very experienced uh, and passionate portfolio manager in Jakob. Uh, thirdly, we have dedicated expertise, which is a requirement in this asset class. Now, you'll notice that we've been talking about experience hand from the beginning into the end of this session, but I think no more is it true than in financial debt. And finally, we have a seasoned and experienced investment team managing the strategy uh, since inception since 2012. So these guys are not new kids on the block, but rather uh, people, uh, a team that has developed this through, throughout the years. Would, would you say these are your main takeaways today, uh, uh, Jakob? I think it's cool. Yeah, it's it's yeah, good. And and look, we're we're very happy to have Jakob uh, join us today. I think uh, we have a very unique oppor investment opportunity set. We invite you, of course, to contact your sales representatives if you'd like to have more information. And I would also be happily like to announce next week's uh, guest speaker would be Asbjorn Troller Hansen, the head of the multi-assets uh, team here at Nordea Asset Management. So until next time, thank you very much for joining us and be well and be safe.